So what's this now, Sandy? You're winning new prizes again with the Climate Help Desk? Well, Climate Help Desk won. I just participated. Yeah, actually, yeah. in one week we had a very nice time. We were number 36 on the list of Trouwe Duurzame 100. That's the newspaper Trouwe, and they have this annual competition. Uh, we were in very good company, uh, like, I don't know, Ecoside won the second prize and mm -hmm. uh, Abe Pay Fossil Fry won the first prize. Fossil so, Fry. Yeah. <laughs> so we were very proud. But at the Pathways to Sustainability conference, we also were nominated for uh, the project of the year. And together with two very powerful projects, a game project, Utrecht uh, 2040, which is a game on sustainability, mm. and uh, another project about a participatory value evaluation, which generated a report on climate action presented to... The participatieve waarde evaluatie. Precies. Yeah, exactly. I read about that. Yeah, so, yeah, and there was a draw. It was public vote. And can you imagine that? 244 votes and there was a draw. So Whoa. together we got the first prize. That's wonderful. That's It's good wonderful. to hear. Very good feeling. So welcome everybody to the Road to Open Science podcast, your guide on everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. Welcome. Today we'll be speaking with Michael Bong. He left academia to work on a platform now called CoScience, which is basically an open peer review system, but it's actually a little bit more than that. We thought the initiative is very promising and open, and that's why we sent our reporter Sandy to talk to him. Okay, now I'm your reporter, fine. Uh, what we have also a new voice here in the studio. What? Sico? Yes. So we have a young voice, Felix. Indeed, yeah. How I'm are you doing? Good, I'm good, I'm fine. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, I'm Felix Schweikofler. I'm still a student, a master's student here at the university. I'm studying neuroscience and cognition. And I'm very enthusiastic about open science because it is the picture of science how I imagined it when I was growing up. And open science is the closest to it that I can imagine. The closest thing to ideal. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what's your definition of open science? Well, the open science in the sense of open science would be just the practicing of science in an open way. But to get there, um, it would be to apply the concept of openness and honesty and truthfulness to every single possible um, situation that you ha can encounter in science and academia. Oh, so we have a purist with us on the road to open science. Exactly. Very eager to learn more about your thoughts, uh, Felix, and we'll, we'll certainly come back to them in the future. Um, and let's just start the news off with your news that you brought with you today, which is... We are starting an um, initiative, a student initiative for open science. We're just starting cool. up and learning ourselves of how to do it. That's also yeah, the main part, the learning aspect. What is it called? Yeah. SOS? Um, CIOS, S-I-O-S. Yes. But SOS, yeah. <laughs> the let's let's put the I thing. in SOS. Um, yeah, I went to your opening lectures or a symposium, and what I found very interesting is the, the, well, the dedication already there with a lot of the students that were uh, involved, and also a couple of the uh, projects that were presented. So students participating in very open projects, including the Climate Help Desk, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and actually getting to uh, getting the grip of what openness in research should feel like from the very get-go. And I think if this is something that uh, if, if, if CIOS is to grow, it should support these kinds of initiatives and, uh, and spread the word. I really liked it. Yeah, this is 
the most fundamental thing there. I mean, as students, we are still learning. We are still learning about academia, of how science works. And yeah. that is therefore also the theme of CEOs that, um, I mean, we are not uh, open science geniuses who know everything. Also, the, the core members of CEOs who are starting this up now, we are also still learning about it. And finding out and developing what open science should and can mean for students, because students were a bit neglected, I think, in this regard. And so we, think that's as, true. Yeah, we as students need to also find out what open science means for us, and especially open education and how that can be better, for example, um, like with shared resources on the internet, um, so that that could, for example, also save money. Mm -hmm. I like the Open Science Genius Award. Open Science Genius, did you hear? You should have that. Okay. <laughs> do, you yeah. want, do, do you want us to award that award? <laughs> yeah, we should make a make an award called it the Open Science Genius. In collaboration with CEOs, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. so what, what were you up to, Siko? Uh, how is it going at the ministry? Yeah, so I've, I'm finding some nice combinations between my work at Utrecht and at the ministry. And one thing that I'm involved in uh, lightly at the ministry now, but will be more in the future and uh, more strongly at Utrecht is the uh, the question of what happens when you do serious public engagement as a researcher or academic. Uh, sometimes you get into situations that might not be as uh, happy as you have imagined it to be. I'm, I'm finding a nice way to say that some scientists are now getting intimidated because the things because of the things they say in to the general audience. So for example, uh, scientists studying COVID, there was a paper this week, I think in Nature is stating that about 15% of people who speak out publicly have received threats worldwide. And this is an issue in the Netherlands as well. And um, Actually, in a very swift reaction, the uh, universities and the Royal Society together have uh, have come up with a plan to help scientists who get intimidated or harassed. To so help them get intimidated? Hmm? <laughs> you said you help them get intimidated. No, no, no. To help them if when, the, they, when they uh, get okay. intimidated. <laughs> and there's a handreiking, so there's basically a sort, sort of a small manifest signed by all directors of the Netherlands stating we're standing behind our researchers and we're going to be training them and we're going to be helping them. And if there's a serious issue, we're going to the police straight away, which is something that didn't happen in the past. So I'm very happy with this development that at least this negative brings about a positive. Is this about I mean, intimidation from the outside only or also about stuff that is happening within the universities? Oh, that's a wonderful question, Felix. Yes. So the problem in basics is that we don't know exactly too much about where the intimidation comes from because we don't have a lot of numbers. But the previous platform I worked with, Science Guide, they did a, a survey last year and it actually showed that around 40% of these uh, cases of harassment and intimidation come from other academics. Ooh. Uh, and, and, and colleagues and, and you can imagine it, it ranges vastly of course because sometimes somebody will make a, like a snide remark and the other time somebody will say something to the effect like this is not going to help your career and then of course it becomes much more serious so this is not only uh, an issue from outside in but the fact that somebody goes and uh, has this public interaction that can create all kinds of responses from your colleagues, but also from the outside world. But it's a very good question. And we're, we're picking this up at Utrecht University with a number of inspiration sessions where we have scientists talking to each other and also giving them hints and tips and uh, and numbers and some theory on, the, on this uh, matter. And that's what I did last week. It was very, very interesting to hear the stories from 
people from all walks of life and all places in our university who have encountered very positive, but sometimes also negative interactions. Do we get a report of the event that you had? So we, we decided to make a closed door because we wanted to have people be able to speak openly, but we're trying to find a way to make it a little bit more open in, in the form of a report. But we're going to be organizing these events continuously, so it's not a one-time thing. Every time we have enough people, we're trying to organize it again. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Maybe next time I can join, but this you time should, I, was, man. Well, I was reporting for the Road to Open Science yes. <laughs> at the same time. Okay, what's next? You were at the Pathways uh, Symposium. Can you tell a little bit more about that? Yes, it was yesterday. Actually, the whole week there was a satellite workshop and yesterday was a big conference, which was quite well received. Yeah, so this is Pathways to Sustainability, which is one of the strategic themes of Utrecht University, right? Yes, and this conference is sort of the annual gathering of the people oh, okay. who engage with this research uh, at the University of Utrecht, but also with the city and worldwide. Uh, it was a lot of uh, emphasis on diversity and inclusion this year, with very nice discussions, also with contributions from people from South Africa and Nigeria. But the day before the conference, I actually went to another uh, side event, which was about energy in transition. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came because two, three weeks ago, we organized a discussion about engaging with the uh, energy industries. And we put it politely, but we know that a lot of energy industries are also polluting industries. Are they now? How to deal with them and uh, how to engage with them for a more sustainable future. We know that they also are needed. They will be also uh, part of the transition. And we had a very, very lively discussion. And one of our speakers was the organizer of the session of Wednesday. And he said, okay, why don't you come and tell us what you want? And then what I brought there was about open innovation. So I made, it, I think, an argument that with the sustainability transition, the old cycle of, you know, secret NDA, yeah, trade secrets, patenting. Stuff. I mean, this doesn't work because the solution is not clear. Everything is being developed. There is a huge amount of urgency, but also a huge demand. So there is no risk or market to be created. And also a lot of investment is public. And it's very, very, very similar to the issue of vaccines. Now, extended over 10 years, but still 10 years is a you know, blink of an eye for technology. And if patenting vaccines for COVID or uh, limiting the distribution and not spreading it widely is perhaps not really the most moral thing you can do right now. Mm -hmm. Why not about the all the technologies we need for the transition? And that was my argument, and I think it was well received. Right, sounds cool. I went to a, a very interesting symposium on Wednesday. Uh, I was looking forward to this for a very long while because one of my personal heroes, Elizabeth Bick, uh, who tweets on her microbiome digest. She came to the Netherlands together with Boris Barber, who co-launched Beer. And both of these speakers were actually talking about the self-regenerative and correcting forces in science. And the basic conclusion from both was that it's extremely hard to correct anything you find in papers, for example, that is not correct or even fraudulent. So uh, Elizabeth Pick, she, she made a name for herself over the past, I think, 10 years, five years of finding these images of mostly biomedical research where if you look closely, you see that something is not in order, that data is copied, pasted, flipped around, reused, rehashed, and that figures are tampered with and she really is trying to say to the journals look people there's something obviously wrong here because people are basically messing around 
and you should do something about this. And what I found extremely uh, well frustrating to hear is that she she like did all this official work of going to the the policy of the journal and then finding out how to tell them that there's something wrong and then formally uh, sending a letter etc and she did that with like hundreds of cases and in 60 percent of cases there's not even a response from the journal oh that's a shame that's like horrible right so she did a big screen because this is sort of her super talent uh, which she's developed over the years and i think it's around four or five percent of of all articles uh, have have issues and it it varies greatly uh, over journals and over fields etc but the main takeaway because there's also stuff that can happen there can be things that just go wrong but Honest some of error. these images are so clearly tampered with that it cannot be as an old oopsie switcheroo thing it has to be something you doctor very carefully with uh, with photoshop or something else but the the, the baseline that uh, also Lex Bouter, who is uh, at the uh, Netherlands Research Integrity Network, who organized this event, his conclusion was like, so what exactly are we paying these journals these huge amounts of money for if they're saying they're doing quality control? Because they're not doing it up front and they're not, they're not doing it post hoc. So what are, what are we doing? And the real issue here is that there's papers that have been indicated by not only Elizabeth Pick, but by others uh, that, that are still cited nowadays quite often. And there's, there's really cases amongst them where you see the, if, if this figure is not correct then all the rest cannot be correct because you don't find the basic effect for example so this is really a huge problem and uh, one thing i found interesting that she mentioned is that uh, one thing we should do is have more open standards have people be able to look at your data for themselves do their analysis themselves etc but also put a higher emphasis on replication and reproduction so just make that more of a standard thing in educating master students in training phd candidates etc so that was there's there was also a positive takeaway but it was uh, it did it, it was called the dark side of science and it was pretty dark yeah it connects to our uh, discussion today there is also another event coming in a corner which we hear less about in the open science uh discussions yes so the 26th of october uh, there will be an hybrid event taking place at the veterinary faculty uh, and it's called bettering your animal research through open science so going with the entire research flow of coming up with your ideas and and also breeding animals testing animals analysis etc so the whole research flow alongside that sort of framework uh, i think about 10 speakers are going to speak in different side events explaining how you can improve your research and reduce the number of animals that you use and prevent other people from repeating experiments that have already been done pre-registering your experiments etc how you can improve animal research it's a hybrid event so you can just check in through uh, i think zoom or you can be there in the real and it's open for everybody so if this is your interest or you think part of it is your interest, then you can just join. Oh, that's fantastic. That's such a social issue, a very hot issue also in the science is actually being dissected according to the open science uh, perspective. Yeah. In, according to animal research, there is also something interesting with open science, more of um, public engagement. I've heard from someone that they are hiding the fact more or less that they're doing animal research because they don't want people to find out that uh, they are doing animal research and want to prevent people from protesting at their door and standing at their door, that they are trying not to communicate it too openly and are not on social media for that reason, for example. Despite having all the ethical 
approvals. Yeah, because people would still be there and protest because they are against animal research in principle. And yeah, so they want, yeah. they kind of need to do it in the shadow almost. And this is in some way connected maybe even to the intimidation part. It can be, yes. Very. That's a that's a good segue. Uh, but the, the thing is, at uh, at Utah University, the policy is is actually aimed towards openness because their experiences are that if you're open upfront about what you're doing, you're actually writing a layman's summary about what you've done and what it means for the animal, but also for the progress of research. In general, there's much more acceptance if you're just open about it. If you keep it closed and keep it secret, it it comes off a sort of a conspiracy, which will not help in trust in science and trust in the fact that these people are doing good work that so, is true th yeah. but this is essentially what this symposium is also about it's about how you communicate about this well i'm yeah. looking forward to that so there's a lot to be discussed and yeah man heard. there's a full agenda and there's so much more but they just sign on to the open science newsletter to find the entire agenda of this month because now we have to move on uh, because we're very eager to listen to the interview that sunday did with michael bon yeah or mikhail bone is a friend oh, i'm sorry <laughs> That's fine. I also made a mistake. So yeah, I learned about the work of uh, Michael Bone six, seven years ago when he started uh, this platform called Self Journal of Science, where he came with totally radical new way of choosing publications to showcase. Everybody could become an editor. He had this argument that you know having editors is actually not a good way of filtering good science. Uh huh. Then he also combine it with open peer review and continuous maturation of an article based on a discussion. So I had a very, very insightful conversation with him and uh, I think our listeners really like this conversation. Uh, so Michael, uh, Mikhail, I should say, Mikhail Bourne, why don't you start by just introducing yourself and your research? I want to say that I'm just a regular scientist. I'm a big fan of Louis Pasteur, you know, the famous French biologist of the 19th century. And my field, well, I started my career in, uh, in academia with a PhD and postdocs in, uh, in biophysics. So I was a specialist of uh, RNA structure prediction. So I, I, I did this for some years. Then uh, after my last postdoc, I went uh, in the <laughs> wild <laughs> by myself to start building the system, uh, so the, the collective science mm -hmm. platform to, to help and to help and fix science. I, I did it at uh, at my own expenses. Uh, so the, the, the collective science platform is, I think, is a, is a consistent uh, mm -hmm. solution to. To, to most of our problems, but the, the one thing that that I cherish uh, the most in, in in this project is the revival of uh, the scientific debate. You should have been very motivated to sort of come out of academia and dedicate your your personal resources uh, and also all your time to this project. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. Do care so, what's your discussion. analysis? <laughs> what was your analysis at that time of the problem? The, the, the original scene of our current uh, academia world. Uh, dates back to the 50s when the impact factor was gradually disseminated uh, as as a main way to evaluate researchers. Uh, so I'm I'm very concerned by all the problems we are we, we face in science. So I, I just I just make a short list to to, to be clear about but what uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, first, you have the, the reproducibility crisis first and foremost, of course. So the the lack of freedom of of scholars. All the constraints that are coming from the, you know, the publish or 
publish or perish mentality. Uh, you have all the problem of research integrity, the problem of open access, the publishing costs, and uh, and so these problems everybody is aware about them. And I, I would also add others, which 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 is a certain coldness and and, and loneliness. Overall, I, I feel that uh, for a human being, the, the academia is not a good place uh, to live. You don't, you don't meet, uh, except your colleague, you don't meet uh, a, a lot of people. You, you can... I felt uneasy uh, mm -hmm. in, this, uh, in this world. I, I think a lot of PhD students and uh, postdocs can relate uh, uh, to this feeling. Okay, so but let's wait, because you mentioned about, I don't know, loneliness or uh, in academia or problems like lack of collaboration or uh, reproducibility crisis. So there is a very long way between, you know, the journal factor, uh, impact factor, and the scientists who practice these things. So how do you see that this has become so central? So you have to think at, at the systemic and the economy of knowledge, which is implicitly created by this way of, uh, this way of evaluating. And there are two consequences from which everything can be explained uh, when you reverse uh, the balance of power. First, you give the power to a minority of private actors. You, you give them the power to control the majority of the, of the scientific community. So this is by itself, uh, this is a problem. They, they can enforce their scientific policy, and they do. Uh, they absolutely do. For example, the policy to publish is to results should be positive and innovative, so there is some ground to ask for this, but this is not how you make quality science. For quality science, you need to, re to verify things, you need to reproduce experiments, you also need to share negative mm -hmm. results. So th there is a policy about results, there is a policy about topics, some, some topics are more trendable, uh, there are fashions in science, they can enforce formats on articles, and scientists are not free to, to publish something as they see fit. They, they are formats to, to follow. They can enforce their open access policy. They can enforce price. So, so th this is a first problem with this economy of knowledge. But there is a second one, which personally I consider even worse. So it, it, it is, uh, the second problem is that in this economy of knowledge, what scientists want is publication. They want access to publication slots, which and and this resource is has been has been artificially made scarce. Mm -hmm. There are not enough publication slots for everybody. Yeah, now I understand. So there is the gatekeeping that happens, and the fact that because of this gatekeeping and these limitations that you mentioned, uh, there is also competition arising, and then this is against the spirit of doing a, a collaboration and then collectively creating new knowledge. I have one small argument on the gatekeeping because there's also the issue of quality, right? There must be yeah, some absolutely. quality control. So how do you see that if there was no gatekeeping, how could have quality of good science be uh, controlled? Uh, so, so, you, so first you have to define what is quality. Okay, I'm listening. Okay, There are two dimensions that constitute the quality of a scientific production. The first is validity. And the second is importance. Quality science is making valid claims about important matters. I'm confident most scientists would agree that this is, uh, 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 this is quality science. 
so I want to emphasize the fact that the two dimensions, validity and importance, are different. They are really different uh, in nature. You, uh, you cannot conflate them. Uh, a scientific position can be valid but not important. It can be valid and important. It can be not valid but important anyway. A, a famous uh, historical example is the, the PER paradox in, uh, in quantum mm -hmm. mechanics. So it was a, a brilliant argument by Einstein against the way quantum mechanics was understood at the time. And this argument was wrong in the end, but it, it is still taught today because it is really a good argument that makes you think and make you understand what is uh, quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, uh, that's an example of you can be wrong, but important. And of course, there are things that are not valid mm -hmm. and uh, non, uh, not important. So to, to evaluate quality, you, so you have to assess these two, dim, two dimensions and you need two processes, two different processes to do this. Okay, tell me one by one. So tell us first about how do you check validity? Uh, how would you propose to check validity? So in fact, to check validity, it's absolutely simple. I just propose to rediscover something which I have known for centuries, but that we have stopped to practice as I analyzed, because of the introduction of uh, publication-based evaluation. This process is well known. It is, it, it is the scientific debate. What turns a scientific claim into a scientific fact or a, a scientific truth is that the scientific community, through a debate, decides cons consensually that this claim is valid. So th this is uh, this is the foundational process of science. Yeah, I understand, and I think that, the way yeah. that the journals claim they do it on scale is that they that's a peer review, right? So what is now wrong with the current mechanism of the peer review, which is practiced widely to check the validity? Okay, so it is it is absolutely important to to explain very clearly the difference. So a scientific debate is a debate of primary people are talking to each other. And to be deemed a scientific, this debate must fulfill a certain number of conditions, which is to be completely open. And I mean, I mean three things by openness in, in that case. I mean that it should be open in time. You mean open-ended? We don't know how long it will take to dig things to the, to, to the bottom and to agree uh, and to eventually agree on, 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 on a scientific truth. We don't know if it, takes, if, if it will take two weeks, uh, six months, or 30 years. I see. It, it is also open in participation to all, to, to all scientists. We, we cannot know in advance who will have the, the, the good idea that will improve, you know, that will settle, settle things right. And also, this is what makes science self-correcting. You know, everybody comes with his own bias, his own prejudice, and the more people face, you know, the more you repel uh, uh, the, the biases of everybody, and, uh, and the, the quicker you converge on, on, on the scientific truth, which is, uh, you know, stripped off all the, all the prejudices of everyone. Yes, I understand. And, uh, and the, the third level of openness is, it is signed. There, there cannot be anonymity in... Uh, in the debate, just as you know, the, the author of an article must sign it, must take responsibility for it. Uh, you know, the, the reviewers, the, 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 the people who participate to uh, to the debate, must be accountable for their for, for their participation. So you want three things. So you want to have basically open, what is now actually very commonly known as 
open peer review, maybe one uh, way of uh, doing it. So it's open in time. It's uh, it's not anonymous. It's also signed, and uh, it it also open to everyone, so everybody can comment. That I understand. I would like to also hear your idea about how are you going to separately measure importance. So do you need first to see if this is valid or not, or you can just start right away on the importance? No, 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 no. It, it, it needs not uh, uh, be valid. And, and also it can change, you know, since the debate is open mm -hmm. forever, maybe, you know, theoretically, maybe five years later, somebody will, uh, will, will get back to the article, notice something that everybody else uh, had missed since that day, and it will reverse the consensus about this article. Okay, got it. Uh, but how are you going to measure importance? So, importance is measured by uh, so a, a different processes. So, importance is a subjective notion uh, by uh, is essentially a, a subjective uh, notion. Unlike validity, so people can by discussing people can converge on on a consensus. But on uh, on importance, you you can't do this. Uh, for example. What is the most likely way to cure cancer? Well, you, you, everybody will have a different feeling, and you don't, you, do, you don't have an argument that will, uh, that will force people to, to, to think the same. Uh, so it is a subjective notion uh, by nature. And what I propose uh, to capture the importance of articles is a, is a is a system of individual curation. So, uh, uh, so I implemented it. I implemented it uh, in a certain way on 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 co-science that that need not be the, the optimal optimal way to do it. But the way I envision things is that everybody uh, has a uh, has a tool which I called the self journal on uh, on the platform, which allows you to curate all the scientific articles that fit to your own sense of importance of what of what take what's happening uh, in your field you propose to you to, to the readers of your self journal uh, which by the way is an, a new means to get visibility at, at a personal level as a, as a scientist you propose a way through the complexity of uh, of the scientific production by curating and recommending articles to read and also by annotating them you give your own scientific vision your 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 own insights on, on this article so you in a sense everybody becomes let's say editor it's not a minority gateway yeah. but it's everybody editor yeah. and i can see some similarities for example with the the field of let's say computer programming you have their stack overflow which is not the purpose of creating knowledge, but answering questions. And then also people, uh, you know, rate each other's answer, discuss about the answer. There is, you know, this spirit of let's answer each other's question and it also self-regulates. And there are many people who, you know, continuously do that or Wikipedia, which has its own editors and the mechanism. So I, I can see that how in masses it can work. But as you mentioned, we have now created this mass of people who have been practicing it and they have they are invested in this system many years of their life uh, the, as the, the current university is created and they have to, uh, it's connected to their well-being and to their personal living. This is my last question to you. 
So what do you think that we need to make this transition? You know, it sounds very good uh, and I think very convincing in theory that this in principle works, but we have this current system uh, and it has its own momentum. What do you personally need for making this transition from the current system, maybe step by steps, to the a system of that the validity and importance is uh, assessed openly by the community through the debate process? The, the way I see things is that there could be a bottom-up process and also a top-down uh, process. I, I think that young, especially most scientists, but especially young generation who have not been spoiled by, uh, by the system, they would really largely uh, agree with uh, this modus operandi that uh, I'm advocating. So if these ideas could get some, some outreach, I think there would be the, maybe the, the, the community of users uh, that is necessary to kickstart the process and prove the, the validity of, um, of the concept. Uh, another, another way to advance this vision is a, a top-down process where institutions want to experiment in this. An, an advantage of this system is that it can grow in parallel of, uh, of, the, of, of the current system. It can only work with uh, preprint, for, for, for instance. Thank you for this interview and explaining to us very clearly what are the principles behind your platform. We will post all the uh, links and descriptions. You have uh, many position papers on this topic that people will read. I hope that uh, yeah, people will understand and uh, appreciate the value and you get uh, traction for, for your work. <laughs> yeah, many thanks yeah, for having Thank me. you very much. Uh, and uh, give me the Mikhail. opportunity uh, to be heard in the <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much, Mikhail. The pleasure is mine. All right, Sonny, that was very interesting. And it makes me wonder, why isn't this like everywhere already? This sounds like such a great idea. W what is necessary to propagate this further? Oh, that's true. So I also asked why not every university is adopting it. It's free, yeah. it's available, it's open. Uh, well, I think the issue of the engagement of the community stays because you have to repair the system while the system is functioning. You have yeah. to build the bridge while you're walking on it. And that's not that easy. You have to bring in the community with you, change a lot of habits and practices. And for a while, it would be a lot of uneasy communications and also requires extra time. There would mm -hmm. be friction. And my guess is that if one wants to start it on scale, perhaps we have to apply it to something which there is need for. And there is no current competing market. For example maybe protocols or the things that we want people to share, but they don't share. Or for example, peer review of software, scientific software. Maybe we can start with those parts and then let that sort of uh, work and then scientists get used to it and slowly bring in preprints or other scientific output to it. But it's a totally radically different system that we are used to. So we have to actually learn how to uh, engage with the system. Yeah, what's interesting that you're saying what we're used to, but we, of course, have our idealist Felix here. Doesn't this sound like more of your ideal world that you described earlier at the start of the podcast? Definitely way more, yeah. It has to go into this in this direction. Maybe we should start with the students putting their master and bachelor thesis on the platform. Definitely. Isn't there already a podcast where people are recording their master thesis? I heard about it, that there is a podcast coming from the science faculty about... What's in a master thesis? So when it comes, we will talk about it.
Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you both for today. Felix will be seeing more of you in the future. Thanks to everybody who listened. And to end up, do you have a, a guilty pleasure in open science, Felix? A guilty pleasure in open science? I think there, I didn't find any pleasure there that wasn't guilty until now. <laughs> Maybe I will still find something. I'm still relatively new to this. I, I will tell you if I find someone. That's great. You'll hear all about it on the next Road to Open Science podcast. Okay, thank you all. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcast. The Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heerenmans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date.